Hello everyone, I'm Serdan Özcan. Welcome to Leading Corporate Transformation, the WeHow podcast powered by PwC. Joining me today is the staple of our podcasts, one and only Gordon von Hirschhausen from PwC. Hello everyone. Thanks Dan for the intro. Hi. Hi. Thank you, Gori. Great to have you. Today we'll talk about IKEA, the famous Swedish retailer of home furnishings and the global supplier of Swedish meatballs. We have a very special guest joining us, Jillian Drakeford, who recently retired as the head of global retail experience and former CEO of IKEA UK and Ireland. Jillian has had an exceptional career, including several years as the CEO of IKEA in China, overseeing the company's breathtaking expansion. We are thrilled to have you with us today, Jillian. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Serdan and Yuri. It's really, really uh, good to be here with you and have the opportunity to sort of reflect a little bit on my time with IKEA and, uh, and share some of my experiences. Thank you, Jillian. Before we dive into corporate transformation, why don't we talk briefly about your impressive career at IKEA? You joined the company in 1987, and since then, you become an IKEA lifer. Yes, sir. and I think I often describe myself in that way. Um, you know, I, 30 years plus working for IKEA, which uh, is longer than a life sentence here in the UK. <laughs> but I would say that um, I much prefer having a, a very long and fruitful career with IKEA. I started actually working for IKEA on the shop floor when they opened their first store uh, in Warrington. So, and that was the first store in the UK. And, you know, I was a lot younger than I am today. Um, and I think at that point, my interest, I had a real interest in home furnishings. Um, and I went along to the interview and they were talking about, you know, the new store and the setup and how it would be. And I'd had a department store background before that. But I have to say that what really swung it for me was they said to me at the time, well, as part of your onboarding, we will need to send you away. And that meant internationally to do your basic training. And I just thought, well, that sounds great. If I get six weeks living and working in <laughs> another organization, then this sounds like a company for me. Um, and so I joined and I actually started with my, I did my basic training in the Amsterdam store in the Netherlands. <laughs> uh, and that was a bit of fun. But that began a very long journey with them. And I worked for a time in the UK, very much working in the stores. And that was very much establishing stores, working commercially. And then after a short break, um, I rejoined IKEA again and actually joined them out in Asia. And my first role out in Asia was I was working actually for um, IKEA in Hong Kong and Taiwan. And there I held commercial roles um, and senior roles. And there I really focused very much on the, the what, what had happened within Hong Kong was, and I think this is quite interesting, you know, we talk about urbanization and the impact that urbanization has had on IKEA. Um, but back in, uh, you know, in um, 1998, when I went to Hong Kong, I was already operating IKEA in a highly densely populated environment, a big city. Sure, yeah. Actually, where nobody had a car. And we had to have an IKEA concept that actually connected with people in order that they could have home furnishings. 
Um, so I think many of the experiences I got in Hong Kong became very valuable when I later moved to mainland China and worked in mainland China for 11 years where I was CEO um, in from 2008 to 2013, um, which was very much about the establishment of IKEA. But then also when I arrived back in the UK in 2013, whereas CEO, my agenda was very much around revitalization um, of the brand, but also that transformation from a single channel retailer to an omni-channel retailer driven by the disruptions of urbanization and changing uh, consumer behaviors and expectations, of course, driven by, uh, you know, digital um, uh, transformation. So I really had a big part of my career was operational. It was working in markets. It was working with people. It was leading um, both China from an establishment point of view, so establishing the brand. And then in the UK, it was very much about um, uh, sort of uh, revitalizing the brand, going through a business turnaround, but also being at the forefront of that transformation from single to omni-channel. And then in my last role, which I took between 2018 and 21, I had an opportunity to work for Inter-IKEA for the franchisor, where all of the learnings in the market, the testing and the trying, how could we take that into developing the IKEA concept for other franchisees in order to get scalability for the future? So I then went from a B2C environment to a B2B environment. So uh, Gillian, uh, you're mentioning the franchise model of IKEA. I was surprised that this franchise model is part of the IKEA story. Can you give a little bit more background on the franchise system of IKEA? Yeah, and I think for many people, they aren't necessarily aware that we operate or IKEA operated as a, operates as a franchisor. Um, and I think this comes very much historically from Ingvar in the sense that, you know, the vision of uh, and the mission of the organization was very much about creating a better everyday life for the many people and doing that through offering home furnish affordable home furnishings at great prices that you know for to create a better life at home and of course what he saw very early on was actually we could have our own organization of uh, meeting people in retail markets but he could see that there was an opportunity to speed up that process and also engage with partners that were working in markets that were further afield than traditionally the Northern European setup, which was very much, you know, when it came out of Scandinavia and then into Europe, specifically Germany, which of course is such a big market for IKEA. So it still is very much a situation where Uh, over 90% of the business comes from the one franchisee, which is uh, uh, the Inca Group. But there are 11 other franchise uh, operations and they work out of Chile. Um, so we have, they've just opened a store in Chile and that the um, Falabella will take um, Peru and Ecuador. 
you have players out in Asia Pacific that have much more experience. So it's a mod which that therefore meant from an IKEA perspective, we needed to conceptualize in order to be able to provide the franchisees with the tools, the methods, the support of really establishing in other markets. And that's why we have a franchisor operation providing and enabling businesses across many markets. Very interesting, Julian. Um, looking back, you have been in many executive roles at IKEA. Looking at the transformation that IKEA took over the years, what would you say, what have been the biggest challenges, strategic operational challenges that you had to tackle with? I think this is a really good uh, question, Gori, and um, one to really think about because um, IKEA has been an incredibly successful organization with huge expansion. If we go back, you know, it started 80 years ago uh, with a mail order business, then a store, and then I would say, you know, a, a finely attuned um, efficient and effective production orientated retailer really very strongly and over the years it's been developed and refined everything from its product uh, design into the way that it was manufactured into the way that it's wholesaled shipped into the stores the engagement of the cup the consumer in part of that journey in order to keep prices low in order that they get good quality low price home furnishings and over the you know the last 50 years that has been refined and refined and refined um, to make it more efficient more effective and to really give better prices to customers because ultimately what they wanted was for as many people as possible to sit on an ikea sofa to sleep in an ikea bed and you know to hang your clothes in a pax wardrobe that's what it's about but of course we were faced then of course with many things that challenge that um and i think so urbanization The movement of people to cities, the fact that we couldn't be where people really wanted us to be and we couldn't be relevant. And then if we think of the model of, you know, on a Saturday, putting your family in the car, driving to Ikea for that day out, then, of course, buying your products, taking it home and hopefully not falling out when you're assembling it. Um, <laughs> but that sort of concept of, One, is IKEA accessible to me because I don't have a car and I can't get my goods home? Two, is there real value in the way in which I use my time in actually being a part of that IKEA journey? And for many people, even though there are 460 stores, one of the biggest complaints about IKEA was, you're too far away from me. So I'd love to engage and I'd love to be able to shop with you, but it's just too difficult for me to do it. So urbanization, I think, amplified some of those challenges and made us really start to think, actually, how do we get closer to people? How do we become more accessible, but also how do we become more convenient so people consider us? Then I think what we also saw with digitalization and online 
then there was a real demand that actually people wanted to access us in different ways. It wasn't enough to just come and visit us physically. They wanted to actually be able to engage with us online, have goods delivered or pick up goods. So the online piece became because of the competition and what was accessible and the choice that was available, then we either needed to play in the same field, otherwise we weren't going to be relevant for consumers. So digitalization and that drive for online leading then from multi-channel to omni-channel meant that we really needed to change the way that we did business. And then I think finally for me, although sustainability has always been a big part of IKEA, um, and very much in our DNA, then I think what comes now is the demand for consumers um, when it comes to are the products that I'm using not only safe in the way that they've been produced, but um, can I be responsible when using them? You know, will, will home furnishing products make a difference in the way that I use them and their impact on the environment? But also, how do I secure that once I've finished with that product, does it go back into a system and, you know, the circular system to either be uh, going to remanufactured, recycled, upcycled, reused? So that demand for circularity that doesn't prevent consumerism but respond but has responsible consumerism there has been a greater demand for that and i would say they're probably the things that have had the biggest impact on actually saying to ikea well if you want to be relevant you want to be for the many which sits in who we are and you want to offer home furnishings because actually we believe that home furnishings makes a difference to your everyday life then we need to not change our DNA, but the way we deliver on it needs to look different. It needs to be relevant for consumers today and for the future. So Gillian, this all sounds like uh, a journey which was building up step by step. It sounds very straightforward. <laughs> so my question goes, it sounds all very nice, uh, but uh, you know, maybe you can share some of the, the bigger challenges that you had on this on this path because turning your business into a multi-channel business i can imagine there's everything that needs to be uh, needs to be turned around right and and to be set up different again so maybe you can give us a little bit of the insights where, where have been the trouble moments in in this journey yeah i i think if i if i start with actually my reflections from my time as a ceo in uk and ireland where I arrived in 2013, and we already had quite an established um, online channel, as well as store as a store channel. But we were very much as multi implies. Multi channel doesn't necessarily mean connected channels. You can often have many channels. <laughs> that, that, that's what I would expect. Yeah, it doesn't give connectivity. So when I when we sort of started to look at our business, um, it was there were a number of channels. They weren't connected, and it wasn't a connected consumer experience. And actually, the customer was asking for that. We were also going through a transition of where we had such a established way of doing business in stores. We knew how to do it. The organization knew how to do it. We had 
KPIs, follow-up mechanisms and methods that actually gave you a successful business. Then when you brought in another challenge, another channel, then actually had to look at how do I integrate that in? So a simple thing from a store manager's perspective is how do I go from being a store manager to being a market manager? How do I think about the people in my market? Yeah. The way those uh, consumers interact with me, either through uh, my physical stores, through my the interactions with the contact centers and online. How do I start to see that as being, I am a market manager. I am yeah, responsible sure. for the people in my market who interact with IKEA. And then what are the tools, support, and also the mind shift uh, that was needed to be able to build a market approach from a store approach. So that was one element. The other shift for me was very much moving from this sort of highly uh, linear process, yeah, of um, into the stores where the consumer met the offer, yeah. Um, and you could meet the uh, the products and the solutions and the know-how in a store. And one of the, I think one of the great things about IKEA was that not only could you walk, can you walk the showroom, be inspired, get involved, really see how things could be at home, but you also have that capability to take your products home today. There are very few retailers, furniture retailers in particular, where actually you can go into a store and say, I need a bed tonight. So that was an, an, an element of that um, instant gratification and being involved and taking it home. And of course, when you want to get closer to where people are, you can't have big boxes where you can have high levels of in inventory and inspiration and meatballs and all of the things that a store gives. Yeah. So we then really had to look at, well, if I want to get closer to people, what part of the IKEA offer would I like to be able to provide them? And that's where we started to look at, and you see this now, you know, in the small stores of La Madeleine, the small stores of Hammersmith. Um, you see this in what we had, what has gone on in Madrid, where there is actually, at one time we had a bedroom shop a kitchen shop um, and a living room shop. So all of these things where we started to test, how do we take the elements of the store experience and the customer experience and start to play to test, actually, should we break it up so that the customer can meet different parts of the business, like a kitchen experience? Because we know that planning a kitchen is quite a, challenge ex experience and you need one-on-one -on -one time and you need the personal service um, and started really to interact with consumers and test and say okay what would you like to meet when you meet IKEA physically what do you want to get from them is it complex furniture planning is it the opportunity to get advice and know-how are you expecting to be able to pick up your candles and your napkins and a few few extra things for the home, you know, an extra 
plant and a pot because you're in an environment, an IKEA environment, but you then happy to, you know, do an online order and then actually receive your PAX wardrobe, which you can't take home on the underground or the bus um, through home delivery. So we really started to test and try. And this was, I would say for many in the business, a challenge because over time, IKEA is a conceptual company that provided so much for other framework for employees that they, in many cases, they were good at executing and running and developing what we already had. But actually, we needed to unleash the entrepreneurship, which sits very much in our value system and how IKEA was created. But we needed to unleash that again. And I think one of the really interesting challenges we always had was we'd got to a point was we knew what good looked like. So somebody could walk into a store and go, this is a really good bedroom department because of X, Y, and Z. And these solutions will actually secure that we will meet the customer in a good way. You know, we will steer the range in a good way and it will work from us from a business perspective. But actually we needed to move back from the solution and go back into the principles around the way in which IKEA does business. So it wasn't so much about what it looked like, but it was actually what sat behind it um, in terms of the way that we met the customer. So if we were going to meet the customer in a smaller footprint, then actually we needed to take care of low price. We needed to take care of securing either um, physically or digitally that the customer could experience the total offer in order to make a buying decision. And I think that was a shift for people to move away from, well, I'm used to standing in an Ikea store and I can see all the sofas physically. And that was good to be able to say, actually now, because we have a digital channel and we have a physical channel, how can we give the customer the same experience, but we don't just have to do it physically. So I think there was a lot of that testing and trying saying we need to show the whole range, but we don't need to do it physically. We can use com combinations of digital and physical experiences to have the same impact. So I think that was a, has been a shift. And, but when I look now, I was in Hammersmith last week, I think they're really finding a way to actually understand, well, when you meet IKEA, be it in a small store, a big store, when you meet us online, when you interact with uh, us through social channels, be it Instagram, be it you know uh, the website, actually the customer doesn't expect everything they expect what they need, and then they need to understand how to navigate and find the totality. And I would say in the last, if I look back over the last 10 years, that has very much been the journey that IKEA's been on. And we now ended up, up seeing quite an integrated market approach where when you go to a physical or digital touch point, you know it's IKEA and you know what you get from Ikea. So that was very long-winded, but I hope it sort of gave you, gave you some ideas. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, um, so Julian, I just want to 
take it a step further. I mean, this throughout this journey, well, let me just start from another corner. At the end of the day, IKEA is a family business. And yes. for most of your career, the founder was around and was very active. And you also referred to Invar a couple of times um, earlier yes. on. Um, was there any moment where you felt like, you know, the f- family was an obstacle or the founder was kind of a, you know, impediment to a major transformation? Um, uh, was there any moment where you felt like maybe we should just sort of, you know, uh, leave aside our legacy and our kind of, you know, founder, let's say, um, principles, and then, you know, start afresh? Afresh. Um, although at times, sometimes, you know, that um, tension uh, existed, but fundamentally, I think one of the reasons that IKEA exists today and will exist in the future actually sits in the way, in the company structure. The fact that um, the founder has been a big part of that business, and now you know that we have found the family members are still a, very much a part of the direction for IKEA. I think what really allows the business to transform sits very much in that DNA, you know, very strong vision. This is about a better, uh, you know, creating a better everyday life for the many people, doing it through providing um, a for, you know, low price affordable home furnishing products that really make a difference to people. And I think that sort of vision and mission, mission are still as relevant as they were today as they were 75 years ago when Ingvar sat and wrote, you know, Danny's testament of a furniture dealer and said who we are and what we stand for and our very strong values of the way of doing business. And that sits at the heart of who IKEA is. Then I think the tension comes when you are exploring actually, how does that then translate into a model that makes us relevant in today's world and for the future, but that still, we are still true to who we were. And I think, so there are tensions and there are discussions. And, you know, if I think back to um, the whole launch of online, Ingvar was so against IT so against online, um, which of course influenced. And it, thank goodness for some really good entrepreneurs working in markets who were working under the radar, you know, around 2008, 2010. We got a few things off the ground that once they, we, they could be demonstrated that this wasn't going to destroy the core business, but was going to add to it, then the organization starts to move. But it is challenging. But I think one of the things I like about it, and I really probably appreciated the most when I went to work for Inter-IKEA is, it's about a long-term piece. It's about a legacy. Because IKEA wants to be here in another 180 years. And we still want to meet people in the way that we have and be relevant. And that sits very much in providing those low, low price home furnishings, really adding value in people's homes. And I think over time, it just took time to change. You know, uh, 
if you think about the catalogue, the printed catalogue and the impact and what an iconic, um, uh, yeah, asset it was for IKEA, because not only was it a great tool for helping us to uh, orchestrate our business internally, but and steer our business internally, but also providing, you know, a product range and pro providing inspiration. Um, going away from the paper catalog, digitalizing, and actually then that then gave us many more opportunities. But it was a big conversation about letting go and actually being able to demonstrate that actually the digital capability actually we could take the essence of the catalog do that but actually do it in a better way in a more relevant way for today so yes it's challenging sometimes it challenges speed but i think in the long time certain i would prefer to be there than um than the not and and then i would i definitely preferred to be in that sort of setup when i was in china in between you know, 2002 and 2013, where we were establishing as a business. And at that time, of course, everything was developing and changing. And I think to work from an, for an organization with a very strong set of values, very strong vision and mission, and very strong principles as a CEO really gave me, you know, that sort of uh, security to be able to navigate an environment where actually things were moving all the time. There perhaps were opportunities, but actually based in the way that we did business, we would stick to that, even though the environment was quite difficult. And so, yeah, I'm a fan, I think, even if the challenges are there. Great. So um, you're not just an IKEA expert, you're also a China expert. And I think it's about <laughs> time we brought China into our conversation. Uh, first of all, uh, how was being a CEO in China like back in the day? And back in the days, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an interesting question because when I look back to um, joining the uh, China organization in 2002 and then leaving, you know, 11 years later, then I actually felt like I absolutely grew up in China when it comes to sort of my executive career um, because I had the opportunity in 2002 to join IKEA as, um, uh, as a, uh, a store project manager um, and actually establish um, one of the stores in Beijing. So when I arrived in China, um, my assignment was to actually, together with property and um, the establishment team, sort of des design, build uh, a store in terms of its physical uh, uh, establishment. Then it was very much that sort of um, okay, how do we take the IKEA concept by understanding the market in China? How do we then take the best of IKEA, connect it, make it relevant in order that consumers will actually be able to interact with us, have value from us and buy from us? And then it was a big question of how do I, how do we build local competence and capability? in order that 
they can run and operate and grow IKEA in China, where we as what we call transferred employees, were really there to be ambassadors for IKEA, transfer knowledge and learning, learning about the market in order that we could then be a bridge to the global organization. So being having that first role was fantastic because you know I'd worked previously in organizations where they had big property departments, big establishment organizations, and almost a turnkey setup. And I was faced with actually, we needed to do all of those things to establish those teams for the future. And I think that helped me a lot when I became a CEO, because of course, during my team as a CEO in China, it was about physical physical establishment. It was about going out into uh, cities, meeting governments, finding sites, beginning those relationships to establish stores that we wanted to be there for the long term. And I think if I hadn't had the experience as a store manager, it would have been a a difficult shift. And that also helped me when I came back to the UK because then we kicked off the establishment agenda again. So that was one thing. And I think the other things of being a CEO was that, and having worked in the organization prior to that, it was very much about um, establishing the brand, building a a connection with consumers. Um, And I think we were there at the right time. You know, the middle class was growing. Um, People were aspiring to owning their own homes. And people were looking beyond China and also to the West about what homes should look like. And because I think very much of the history of China and and where it had been, they were looking for reference. And IKEA actually became a really good reference point, especially for the younger generation, when they were thinking about, well, how do I live in a modern way? How do I live in a Western way, but it actually suits me as a Chinese person? And uh, one of the things that happened actually while we were in China was um, uh, uh, they, the actual brand in China is called Yi Jia Jia Ju. And um, we started- Please say to this s- again. Yi <laughs> Jia Jia Ju. That, that sounds very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and um, when we were establishing, we started to see people renting properties furnished and they would actually advertise it in Ija style, <laughs> Ikea style. So we saw very quickly well, yeah. that it wasn't just about the furniture we sold, but actually the way we put it together, the home furnishing solutions and the way that people lived, you know, there was a connection and a reference. So you were building a strong emotional connection. And that for me is always important. It's more than just selling uh, products. The other challenge in China, of course, was to be affordable. Um, you know, uh, IKEA is about uh, making products accessible to as many people as possible. And if you looked at income levels, even if there was a growing middle class, we really needed to work hard at getting our prices on the right level. Um, and that gave me the opportunity to really work with the whole value chain 
um, as a, you know, I'm a commercial retail CEO, but one of the delights of working in China was I worked so closely with my colleagues uh, back through the value chain. And we had real opportunities to say to the guys who worked in the trading office and were doing the sourcing and design to say, do you know what, I need a sofa that will actually retail at, I don't know, the equivalent of 90 euros, yeah? How do we work together to actually source the right, choose the right materials, get the price right from a, uh, so designing the product for the retail price, really understanding the consumer needs in China and working together on that. And I think that's one of the great benefits of IKEA is the whole value chain because we design to the price for the consumer. And that shortcut we had in China allowed us to source new materials. It allowed us to have a bedroom set, which was, you know, a bed, two side tables, a chest of drawers and a wardrobe that was at such a great price in China that actually not only sold in great quantities in Asia, but also became a great product in Europe because we could bring it in at a price level that actually meant there were more people that could access IKEA. Amazing. Uh, yeah. So there was something I really, really valued in that experience. And then I think the other thing that I learned was China was urbanized, is urbanizing. It was urbanizing way before we really started to get into the conversation in, in Western Europe. So we were all, we were faced from day well with the fact that people don't have cars. And if they had a car, it was not for putting a bookcase in, it was for carrying their family. Um, so we had to really look at the concept and really consider high levels of home delivery. Um, we also needed to offer services because people didn't, people weren't really into DIY. Um, and um, therefore didn't feel confident to take home products, assemble themselves. So it challenged us to look for alternative services um, to be able to offer um, to consumers so that actually they did want to buy their kitchen or buy their bookcase. We also challenged when it came to uh, materials because of humidity. Simple little story we had in Hong Kong was that when you get a Pax wardrobe, you often need to have quite a big room if you want to do a 230 Pax because it's very tall, yeah? People live on very small spaces. Maybe you have a bedroom that isn't, doesn't have that capacity of over two meters in length to be able to build a product on the floor and turn it upright. So then you're challenging back to global IKEA to say, do you know what? We need to look at the way that products are assembled. We need to look at the impact of humidity on the quality of our products. And I think there are some of the things that were, were a big experience from being a CEO in China. And then I think the biggest thing that you have when you are representing a brand in a developing market is then you have that responsibility to partner, to really understand the market, look at the connections, and not actually go into a market and say, this is the way you need to live with IKEA products, but actually really say, how do you live 
this is the offer IKEA has and how do we bring it together? And then the final thing for me would be um, you need to build local competence. If you want to expand and grow, not only from a physical perspective, but a digital perspective, you need to grow competence internally. And I think that becomes even more obvious now in the last 10 years when you look at just how um, the whole digital agenda, you look how far ahead China is when it comes to digitalization and the capabilities that are available in that market. If you've not grown people internally that have shared values, that understand the business, then you'll never capitalize on what's available and actually be able to create something that actually is still truly IKEA, but actually um, uses the technology in order to meet people in the way that you want. So you need all of those elements. Coming from a finance background, Julie, it's <laughs> so interesting to hear how much you are driven from the front line, how much, you know, satisfying customers is at your heart, right? My question is, and I know it's a kind of a, 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 um, a secret, how are you driving profitability in IKEA? Because you're not uh, reporting it. So it's just interesting to see how much financial steering is taking place in IKEA. There's a lot, Yuri, I think. And I, I come as a CEO that um, very much I felt that the way to uh, lead transformation is the starting point is to put the consumer at the center of what you do. Um, because otherwise we do, there is a tendency in many organizations and IKEA is no different in that, that everybody comes at it from a, almost a sino perspective, you know, does it work from I've my heard perspective? About this before, yeah, yeah, you know, from a finance piece. <laughs> this does is it what work? keeps us busy. <laughs> it keeps us busy. And I think, so one of the things that I, I think brought success and still brings success, and I'm not saying there is no tension, there's huge tension is yeah. that sort of the shift and development of the pro of the profitability model, but was very much to say, shall we put the consumer in the center? Shall we really think about delivering to that consumer? And then actually let's look at the best ways to do it. Exactly, but working not back from just there. Yeah. But, and building it out from there. Yes. That means we do have to trust and try. Yes. That do means we might do things that we will actually say, this doesn't make sense to us from a business perspective, from a profitability perspective, but actually we need to do it together because we need all the competences to make it successful. And yeah. it can't just be the follow-up. That means we have to have a bit of a shift mm. from the whole traditional business case approach. Yeah. yeah. You know, that sort of sitting going, I'd like to do this. And if I do this, I need this extra money and this extra resources and I can guarantee you this. We all know that, that when we're working in DevOps and we're working with innovation, uh, that actually we're not, we know what we'd like potentially the outcome to be, but we also know that we have to test and turn and try. So I think that was a shift. But From my perspective, one of the advantages of the value chain is that actually if the feedback is good, then if you're faced with a problem in the front line that potentially is 
driving a cost in the P&L of the retailer, you still, even if it takes longer, you still have the opportunity to re-engineer something back through the value chain that over time will actually enable profitability. You know, simple things like sort of what light, what ranges should be online. Um, you know, we would have always tried to have um, the lowest price into the store, which means that if you went to buy your wine glasses, you would buy them as single pieces. Well, when you start to ship single wine glasses, then it's not particularly profitable. <laughs> because of breakages and all of those sorts of things. So then you have to come together and say, well, I still want that customer to be able to have that wine glass, but what do we need to do differently in the whole chain to enable that to happen? And I think that's one of the really big benefits of IKEA that you can actually re-engineer yeah. in order to secure profitability. But it's challenging because, of course, consumers and the front end of the business have very, very high demands. And the retailer is looking for those retail sales and you know market share at the same time that the big, you know, the bottom of the iceberg where all the orchestration, where all the, the magic has happened before needs to be reworked in order that the consumer gets a product at a great price in the way that they want and when they want it and where they want it, but actually that we have a P&L that provides profitability that can be reinvested into better prices, better products and better materials and the sustainable agenda. And of course, you've got that, that tension. Um, but IKEA knows that if we wish to be there for the next 80 years, the business model has to develop, but it needs to work both for IKEA and for the consumers. Sure, sure. But um, you have worked in these uh, local markets in China, in the UK. So how was the connect with, let's say, headquarters? So did you experience some no's when it came to investments in the local markets? And were there some regretted, let's say, refusions that you uh, uh, remember? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because it's um, it's a highly governed process and people often ask me this question because I needed to go to an investment committee if I wanted yeah. to open a store or I wanted to make changes. Yeah. I just went to at the IKEA bank rather than going to, you know, an external <laughs> bank. But the processes were the same. Um, and I think that tension between um, uh, the profitability of the your everyday ongoing business yeah. and then the investment in the future was always a tension. And I, you know... When I was in China, and I can be very, very honest with you now, um, and hindsight's a wonderful thing, uh, is, you know, we were, we were experienced, and a bit like Hong Kong a little bit, you know, we were right in the throes of urbanization. It was very clear at the time in China and even in Hong Kong that to apply the traditional IKEA model of 
big standard stores where actually we go into the market, we purchase the land, we build, and then we ex we then build the infrastructure and ask people to come and visit us, be it uh, public transport or um, uh, you know p uh, a private car. Gillian, sorry to to uh, step in here. So IKEA is owning yes. the stores. Yeah. So you're building and owning the source. That I think that's the, an interesting fact. That is the traditional model. Now yes. it has changed yes. and is changing because of course as we've as they've gone into a market approach, yeah. then um within the IKEA group, they actually now are going into renting spaces because often you want to be in a shopping market or yes. you want to be on a high street or you know you're wanting to be closer and then of course the model of buying land building doesn't really have the same impact and also it doesn't give us the opportunity to test and try yes. in the same way of going into a lease agreement so this is also a transition for ikea if i take and now the main it's hybrid. group And now it's hybrid. Okay. But there we learned a lot from the other franchisees because many of the other franchisees already had a bit of a hybrid model. Oh, you know, if okay. you're operating in Hong Kong and you have stores in Causeway Bay on Hong Kong Island, then you were renting, you weren't buying. Yeah, so yeah, this yeah. is where I think the transformation that the organization has gone through has really been helped by having um markets where urbanization had almost kicked in sooner and some of the givens that we have in western europe um had actually taken longer to change so you know urbanization in asia has been on the agenda a lot longer and many of the things that we see in urbanization in terms of lower car ownership densely populated people living on smaller spaces And um, all of those things we were experiencing in Asia. Now, of course, we see more and more of that in Western cities. And actually, we can learn from the experiences in Asia, actually, uh, in Western Europe. And I think that's where, if I look now at the development today, the combination of having the big IKEA in terms of uh, the Inca group and the smaller 11 franchisees, the cross-fertilization, the testing, the trying, and the transfer of knowledge that actually accelerates what you see today now in what we would describe as IKEA having a market approach, um, looking at a market and saying, actually, how do we meet the people in the market with all the different channels in a connected way? Thank you, Gillian. Um, I have a concluding question basically okay. you know looking back your experience over 30 years um, in senior roles uh, what were the three things where you realized had to happen for a successful transformation i think number one for me was um you know that um We needed to really, if I think about my time in the UK, was to step back to really understand why are we here? Because I think when you're in the daily operation and it's refining what you're doing, sometimes you, you're, you, you step away, 
you don't revisit it. And I think really one of the most important things for me in managing a transformation is that why, what, and actually the how can always change to deliver on it. So for me, the, the, the strength of IKEA was being a purpose-led organization with a very strong vision and mission an openness then to say, well, actually, how do we deliver on that in a relevant way? And how do we transform our business model to meet consumers where we are? How do we really use digital to enable that experience for the consumer, but also to enable us to do better business right from product design, sourcing materials, actually securing the products in the right place and getting it to the consumer at a good price and also making it work from a business perspective. And then I think the third part was that actually the whole sustainability element, which has always been in the DNA and actually seeing that as a competitive advantage, but also seeing that actually we needed to take the next step and actually move into the world of circularity and really look at the longevity of the product. So I think really holding on to that mission, the vision and what that could mean and then really starting to look at actually, well, how do we do that? What do we hold on to and what do we change? So that was important. Then I think the other part for me was the acceptance that um, because we needed new expertise and skills, that we really needed to look at the the capabilities that we have in the business in order to support us with that journey and the final outcome of an omnichannel retailer. And really understanding what competences you need but understanding that actually it needs to meet a, be a mix of competence and it needs to be a mix of values, yeah? Yeah. And I think IKEA has a set of values which drives a way of working and a culture. And in lots of ways, a lot of really good stuff, but it can also be a hindrance when somebody says, uh, but this is IKEA, we don't do it that way. It's not the IKEA way. <laughs> And I think, so bring, finding a way to really secure shared values, understand the values that are non-negotiable, but understand that actually then you need to come together with other competences, other perspectives, other points of view to be able to find common ground, to perhaps actually be able to move the business. And I actually think that that for me is probably one of the most important leadership qualities in transformation. It's not doing business the same way based in what you do, it's doing business differently. And actually that means you need to bring in new capabilities, new skills, you need to go into partnership potentially to actually be able to move the business and offer the consumer what you want. And that requires a slightly different type of leadership because you won't 
you can't always find somebody with the exact match to go into business with or to employ. But actually, you need to secure that you can secure the DNA, but it might get a slightly new tweak as you go forward that's needed to be successful. So I think that's important. You should never, it's the mission, it's the vision, it's the values, it's the culture, but you need to invest time in the cultural shifts that need to take place for you to do business in a different way uh, as a global company. So they would be two things. And then I think, you know, we have a, there is an IKEA value, which is constantly on the way. And I think that fits really, really well when we talk about digital transformation and we talk about DevOps and we talk about Agile and, you know, we've got to be in it. We have to Always. test, try. Never and arrived. We need yeah. to be a learning organization. And I think so that as a uh, something that is a very strong principle almost needs to be more amplified that, you know, you need to be in it to try it, to test it, to learn in order to, to do better. And that becomes very, very important. So they will be some of the important things. And then being strategic, have your ear to the ground, being out with people. And when I mean people, it's the co-workers in the business, the people in the questions every day, in your contact centers, in your stores, in your new formats, who are with customers and really saying, okay, how do we enable you to do a better job in order that the consumer is and the customer is happy and that they will come back to IKEA. So, you know, Ajayan, there's so much to talk about uh, in, in the IKEA world uh, that you were conquering. Um, maybe looking a little bit at you, at your personal development, uh, what would you say, what were some of the best career advices you received over time? And were, were there some advices coming from Ingvar? Yeah, I, do you know what? It was really funny. Um, uh, only last week, um, I was really fortunate to meet Ingvar on three occasions. Uh, the first time I met Ingvar was when we were just, we just opened the Warrington store and I was on the shop floor. And I think what I learned from him in that point is how close he was to the products and the consumer and actually securing that, uh, the way that we met the customer with the products made it easy for them to choose and buy the product. And um, we ha I had uh, this experience with him over um, napkins, you know, serviettes, you know, yeah, sort of yeah. packs. You know, you've probably all bought napkins <laughs> from IKEA at some point. I'm sure And we, we were stood in front of a bin of products, you know, this big bulla bulla that we always used to have at IKEA, you know, stacked high, great price. And he said to me, why haven't you opened a packet so the customer can touch and try the quality? And I just thought that was amazing that somebody yeah. who had created this organization was still into the retail's detail. Yes. And that yes. sort of thinking, well, I look at this product, it's a great product, but it's inside a cellophane wrapper. And actually, how is the customer going to know how good it is 
what great value it is yes. and you know for me and i think so that was one of the things i learned very early on and then i had a re i had a couple of opportunities to travel with him in china okay um where he used to come and spend a couple of weeks with us and he would cover the whole value chain so he'd be out you know with the trading guys out and yeah. the suppliers he'd be out in um the, the the logistics warehouses with the the wholesaling guys and then at the weekends he'd say to me can we do a few stores so we'd be in the stores peak days walking the stores talking to customers and uh and actually really talking to 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 the co-workers in the business and asking them and i think he was a really good example of bringing the organization together simplifying what we do but really knowing that it was about that connection to we sell products that make a difference for people. The low price element was so much in his system because he wanted as many people as possible to have those products in their home. It was always about the democratization of home furnishings in everything you did. And I think, so they were some of the things that you always got. So he could be strategic, yeah. he could be challenging. You never tried to bluff him. <laughs> if you didn't know, you never ever tried to give an answer because he knew. <laughs> <laughs> so you just said, I don't know him right and I'll find out later. Um, but I, um, on, the, on a funnier note is that he used to write his handwritten notes. Yeah because um, uh, after a visit, and the other day I actually found my little handwritten note from him, which is on a tiny little, a tiny card in block capitals, because of course uh, he didn't find writing so easy because he actually suffered with dyslexia. Ah, okay. Uh, that's why all the products have names rather than, of course we have article numbers because of the logistics and the whole setup. But one of the reasons why all our the products have for all of us who are non-Swedish bizarre names, yeah, yes. um, uh, everything had a name because that was something he could remember rather than giving a set of numbers. Yes. Um, but he, so he, these little notes talking about the business you were in, the experience that you had, and how happy he was that you were doing what you were doing, and I think that for me was important. You know. IKEA is about, of course, it's a great, yeah, it's a great business, but it's actually people that make that business. So, Jillian, do you remember what he was putting down on, on your note? Yeah, he just talked about um, thanking me for the time, the time in the stores, okay. um, the fact that we were establishing in China and offering home furnishings and that we were doing good business and we were learning from the business that we were in. Um, and I rem and he'd take those stories because we, we had a long conversation about kitchens and um, the way we will work because kitchens are very small in Asia and the way people cook is different, which means we needed to adapt and do things differently. And we'd had a conversation and I talked about our kitchen business and where the opportunities were. And about three weeks later, I heard him talk or I heard of him having a conversation in the Amsterdam store with some people I knew where he relayed the kitchen conversation that he'd had with me in Asia in that meeting and I think that's not by going is it when you're head of an organization that is 
230,000 people to death. Amazing, huh? And I think that sits in the DNA. She led in that way. And I think if you meet many of the leaders at IKEA, either CEOs or those that work globally, that closeness to the front, the front line, where the business happens, where yep. the magic happens, is something that is so important um, for all leaders um, for IKEA. So it's a close organization, even if it's a big organization in that. So no, I was fortunate to have that. And then I was really lucky. You know, I, I was reflecting now as I start to look for non-exec roles and have to go to interviews and apply for jobs. Um, I was super fortunate, you know, I was yeah. in the role, having a great time, really sort of contributing, performing and having conversations. And in many cases, that's when the opportunities for the next job came along. Um, and I realized that I don't think I'd ever really applied for anything. I think the only job I ever applied for was probably the first job that took me into Ikea and maybe one or two others. And I always had good sponsorship. I always had, had good leaders, um, some very good leaders who, because it was a front-led business, who really um, empowered the CEOs to, to maximize the market potential with IKEA, then I think you were, you were allowed to lead, manage, and grow your business with the support of IKEA. And I enjoyed that that much, much more than just being potentially, you know, here it is, you need to execute. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, it's about you do your job, but through doing your job, not only do you do, do a good job in that market, but actually the impact of what you do actually can impact a broader and a, a global organization as well. Interesting, Julian. Uh, final question and, or we have two questions left. The, the one is, if you would uh, put it in, in a very short advice, what would you tell future female CEOs what is important for their career steps that they'd like to take? For me, this is an interesting one, actually, because, of course, I worked for an, organi I worked for an organization where... Um, Uh, I never felt from a gender perspective there was an issue. And I think that sits very much in the Scandinavian approach with equality and those sorts of things. But I think the most important, regardless of being female or male or, or you know, or, or, or um, how you identify is that you need to be authentic. You need to be yourself. And I think for me as a CEO, um, in any organization, then you really have to connect to why you are there, the purpose, yeah? So the why, the what you do, and also the values of the business. That doesn't mean it has to be an identical match, but it needs to be a set of shared values because that enables you to lead with purpose but it also enables you to engage others. And I think as a CEO, a big part of the magic is to be able to connect people to the purpose of organization and what they do and for them to actually feel that they can make a difference. 
But if you can't be yourself in the job that you do, then I think it's quite difficult to sort of encourage others to be themselves and actually connect. And I, I, I really believe that you can only be your best self when you feel okay and that you are respected for who you are. So I would encourage everybody. People often say to you, what does a good CEO look like? Hmm. And when they're comparing what it should yeah. be. And I've always said right the way along when I've talked to the development of people and people have gone on to be CEO, future CEOs, my starting point would always be, it's about you, your own authenticity, and actually how do you connect to the business and how you can articulate it and actually lead with purpose. Because if you can do that, then you can also help others to connect and find the purpose in what they do in their everyday. Okay, Gillian, thank you very much for all of that. Um, it's our tradition now, after so many episodes, we always ask our host to recommend a book for our listeners. Let's do the same with you, Gillian. What have you read lately that we should all go ahead and buy and read it. Um, I'm going to ask to uh, be able to share two, actually. And I think the first one for me um, is actually related to uh, Simon Sinek's work. So both podcast, you know, podcasts and uh, TED Talks. And I think for me, I always go back to it. And that is right, you know, the, the, the reason, the, the why, the importance of the why. Um, and... Um, when you are leading any form of business or transformation, revisiting that in very simple terms is really important for me and it always gives me inspiration. And then, of course, having had a long career in a very analog world um, and having to be a part of that transformation, then I think one of the books that helped me a little bit on the way with this that I still refer to um, would be actually a book by Jonathan Smart, who is called Sooner, Safer, Happier, around uh, digital transformation. But I think it is written in such a way um, that it actually supports those CEOs or executives that are really looking at themselves and saying, do you know what, what do I, what do I need to unlearn what do I need to learn? But actually, what do I need to take with me? Because actually we need those skills in the future. And I really appreciated the way that his book helped me to identify, I don't need to throw the baby out with the book, with the, with the bathwater. There's some stuff I can still use in the future, but there's also stuff I need to unlearn and things I need to learn. I like the phrase unlearned. <laughs> That's cool. Thank you, Gillian. That really summed up very well. And this started off as a transformation episode, but it ended up as a leadership episode as oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> so I would like to thank Love you once term, again. Yeah. Once thank again you. for great insights and um and also there were so many things that i never knew about ikea this was kind of a learning experience from a contextual point of view as well um gori do you have any final words yeah no i just have to thank you Gillian. it was great to get the insights to come from the transformation from 
that you were uh, uh, doing at I IKEA and, and how this really, as you say, turns into a leadership exercise and how you shared all the wisdom around leadership with us. So thanks very much, Jillian, from my end. That was a really, really interesting talk and good insights. Thank you so much. No, but thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's uh, It's been a, uh, nice to have some time together. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye, Jillian.